load the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate about the weights And make a podcast! Sumo is cheating! This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will Welcome to Weekly Weights This is episode, I think, 113 Is that right, Will? Yeah, 100% okay. And I'm Alex, and with me is Will, and joining us today via Zoom is Jamie Buziotis. Say hey, Jamie. Thanks for coming on, man. So your first job for today is just to give everyone an introduction to yourself. Easy. So I'm uh, Jamie Buziotis, as the boys introduced. I'm the head of strength and conditioning at Melbourne Strength Culture. So it is a predominantly powerlifting and strength-focused gym, but... I take care of any of the athletes that come through the doors there and a lot of the gen pop clients. I've got a couple of powerlifting clients, but predominantly more sports performance and, uh, and body composition, really. So my history previous to strength culture, I worked in sports performance more so. So um, came up through amateur footy and amateur soccer, worked up to semi-pro soccer, and then got my first gig within the AFL and realized that high performance wasn't so much for me i preferred the private sector and timely as it was i got a job at uh melbourne strength culture and that's when i went purely private um but in saying that i feel a lot of the a lot of the influence that high performance and working within team sports i think that's shaped a lot of the way i look at training and coaching now so that's uh that's pretty much my my history so the reason we've got Jamie on the podcast is to actually talk about the role of cardio and energy systems in powerlifting training. But before we get there, I actually want to get immediately off topic because you spoke about um, your, your backing in like high performance and working with sports. And something that I noticed when I was working in commercial gyms was like how much personal trainers wanted to bring in elements of what they considered like sports training or high performance training to general population clients. And in some ways, there's probably a lot of good in that. And then there's also probably some ways that are, that are maybe not so good or not so useful. What's your sort of take on that? Like, and, um, you know, what's the good and what's the bad? So I think for a general population client, um, making trainers athletes is probably the best thing you could possibly do. Unless they've got some deep connection with barbell lifts or bodybuilding style training, I don't think it's necessary to expose them to those lifts. Like it, it doesn't make any sense to me to make someone do a barbell deadlift or a barbell squat or a barbell bench press, especially a barbell bench press. Like it doesn't make much sense. If you can get someone that is a bit stronger, they're more powerful and they're more conditioned, they're probably going to have a better quality of life. And as a general population client coming to you, if you're improving their quality of life, you're doing your job pretty damn well. I think like anyone that's done a hard block of barbell training could probably attest to this. You feel like shit afterwards at the end of the six weeks fatigue that's imposed by that style of training. It like, it doesn't feel good. Like you have to really want that and really like that. If you've got, you know, a mid forties mother of two deadlifting cause you love deads and she feels battered as a result. Like, I don't know if you're doing your job the best way you can, if you're getting her to feel better, and she's able to, I guess, cope with the stresses of day-to-day life better as a result of your coaching and programming, that's probably a benefit. Now, the pitfalls, if you're getting someone doing box jumps to a stupid height, then that's probably not very responsible and where I think training like an athlete can start to turn to shit pretty much. Yeah, I think where you were going at the end there was kind of part of what I was thinking is like, it's one thing to say, I want to bring up a lot of like qualities that's just going to let this person live a happy, healthy life. I think that's dope. But I think when people start getting fixated on like complicated training means, because it looks cool to see what people who are in like the fucking NFL are doing. um, When you get fixated on that and instead of focusing on the adaptation, you focus on the means and you ask, like you said, 40-year-old mother of two with no athletic backing, to do shit that's just like way above her pay grade as an athlete, then you're missing the point. Like you're doing something that looks sexy, but doesn't necessarily meet her needs. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And that's where I think as well, um, like this is my biggest pet peeve is using jumps and plyometrics as conditioning. Like it has its role in experienced athletes, like experienced experience. Like that's when you start working more the power endurance into the spectrum. But if you're getting 
you know, again, we'll use the, the, the 45 year old mother of two as the example. If you get her doing extensive plyometric work and she's had never had any exposure to that, it, it's stupid. Like you should just get her doing completely different modalities to get the same result, not doing it because there's this perceived, um, just the perceived effort you get from the workout, oh, pull up super sore. So it was a fantastic workout. And that's where a lot of those methods start to get butchered and, yeah, the, the whole sports training, I would barely call that sports performance training, um, starts to, I guess, get a bad rap with Gen Pop. Matt, let's transition. Um, and we're gonna, we are gonna talk a bit about cardio. So Jamie, you've been producing some pretty cool content talking about this. And I guess when I was thinking about the topic, the, the place that I wanted to begin was actually just to give people like a broad idea of, um, of what energy systems are and what, like, what we're even thinking about when we talk about training them at all. So first question is, how do we actually fuel muscular contractions or how do we fuel physical activity? Yes. So I guess I'm not going to go, I'm, I'm trying to make this as simple as possible because I think energy systems and metabolism stuff can, uh, anyone that's done an undergrad probably tuned out quite a bit during metabolism subjects. Like I reckon 99% of people that did an undergrad just lost their marbles doing metabolism. I know I did. I didn't enjoy it at all then. And now I'm finding an interest in it now. So I want to try and make it as simple as possible, I guess. The point of training energy systems is like, if we think about when we eat food, we break break food down, we store it as fuel, and then we use that to fuel muscular contraction. So that's the, the main thing. There's, when you train energy systems, you're improving the efficiency of that process. So that's it in a nutshell, really. So when you break, you, you eat food, you break it down, you use it for fuel, then it's your efficiency of using those energy pathways for fuel that's improved by energy systems training. So that's pretty much it, it in a nutshell. Um, is, that the, is that the whole question? Um, yeah, that's well, a start because I guess the next logical step is to say, if all we're really doing, like if, if all we're doing is using these systems that fuel our muscles to do work, and what is different or is there anything different at all about when we're say lifting weights as opposed to when I go for a walk or when I do a box jump or when I ride a bike or anything else? Yeah. So the two main factors would be just intensity and duration. So if you think of the intensity of muscular contraction, when you go for a walk, it's quite low. If you think of the intensity of sprinting, it's quite high. The duration of which are both going to be completely different. So that's where you start to see like the classic breakdown of energy system pathways. So you've got your, your two branches with oxygen, without oxygen, so aerobic, anaerobic, and then you can break them down further. So that short term or immediate energy use would be your phosphagen system. So that whole uh, like the explosive effort. So for the powerlifter, it's their one rep max. It's that single. Um, you know, for the athlete, it's their, you know, 10 yard sprint, things like that. So it's, that's the short term. Then you've got longer term. So you're it's still anaerobic, but more glycolytic. So you're using carbs or glycogen as the main form or the main substrate. Um, so that would be a 200 meter sprint. That would be a set of eight to 12 squats, for example. And then you've got your more longer term. So this would be the walk aerobic where you're trying to use fat as fuel. Um, so it might be a slow jog. It might be 30 to 60 minutes on a stationary cycle. It's, it's pretty much life. I would say the aerobic energy system is so everything else. Right. And so I guess when we think about that difference in grade or like the difference in the amount of energy we're having to synthesize, that also takes us to the next step in this puzzle, which is that, or at least my understanding of it is that the aerobic and anaerobic energy systems don't really exist separately. You know, what happens after we do a, say when we do a one rep max, right? Even though that was, that was an anaerobic effort afterwards, you still start breathing heavily, right? Because we've got to resynthesize that fast energy from somewhere. And the second those demands to produce energy quickly go away, we start falling back on the slower energy systems to resynthesize all the substrates that we use to produce the fast energy. Is what I said correct? Yeah, definitely. So at any one time, all energy systems are working. So to say that anything is purely aerobic or purely anaerobic is just, it's incorrect because 
as with any physiological mechanism, like things are going on at all times. Nothing is on while something else is off. It's just the rate in which something is contributing. Now with that, so let's, let's just use the one rep max as an example. Um, that would be predominantly reliant on the short term energy stores through ATP using um, phosphocreatine. So intramuscular phosphocreatine. Now, the second that is done to replenish PCR, we'll call it, your oxidative energy systems need to kick in to replenish that. I guess that leads me on to why I push it a bit more with, I guess, the, the powerlifting population. There's two main reasons. So for me, it's health and performance, but for the performance reason, if someone is fitter and say if they're doing a, say if it's a powerlifting meet, they hit their first single, they've relied on that immediate energy system and then they're resting for three to five minutes. If they're aerobically fitter, they're probably going to be able to recover better. So with the stress that's imposed the day, so say if it's a beginner lifter or an intermediate lifter, there's the stress of the day, they're, they're, they're wigging out about going out for their second attempt, that's draining them. But if they're fitter, they're probably going to be able to deal with that stress and then come out and execute the skill better. If they're able to, I guess, replenish PCR as quick as possible. And that same thing would be true, I presume, when we're doing training as well, right? So, you know, although our one rep max might be very reliant on PCR, if we're trying to, you know, get through a decent volume of accessory work or we've got 90 minutes to train, and we want to get 20 productive sets in instead of 10, then our ability to, to resynthesize some of that energy in between sets is also potentially a big rate limiter on how much actual training we can get done and therefore how productive we can be as trainers. Am I right? Without a doubt. Without a doubt, definitely. And that's, and that's another reason. It's like if you're able to produce more quality work in a 90-minute session to two-hour session, over time that's going to add up. If by the back end of all training sessions, 90 minutes, two hours, you start to drop off, you feel like trash. And that's when you, know, you see it all the time. People go, oh, I'm not going to do this accessory. I'm not going to do that accessory. Over time, that's tonnage. That adds up. And I think everyone can pretty much say that at this point, volume is probably going to be the determining factor over the space of a, of a lifter's career. If you're doing that over time, and you're dropping off over time, over time, over time, that's, that's potential gains lost. If you're doing those to a high quality over time, you're probably going to improve more than the person that's dropping that off. You're right there, Alex? Sorry, that's a sad cough. Yeah, we're sorry, we turned the mic off for Alex to have his little coughing fit. Um, look, so far, all of what you're saying um, absolutely gels in me. So it sounds like in order to both facilitate recovery on competition day and, in, and to allow us to train effectively, like within a session, we need a degree of aerobic fitness. Yep. What about recovery between sessions? Is there, a, is there a role for having a bit more cardiovascular fitness or having some baseline activity there? Yes, definitely. So if you think about what training does, it's driving you into a state of fatigue. It's, it's disrupting homeostasis pretty much. Your body's resting state. All good. <laughs> so it's, it's disrupting your body's resting state. Now that is, if we think about the nervous system, that's our, I guess that's sympathetic drive and we require sympathetic drive for absolutely everything without it. You're going to be useless. So that's the whole fight or flight. So we disrupt it through training. Now, in order to recover from training, we need the other side, that parasympathetic drive. Aerobic fitness and cardiovascular fitness improves parasympathetic nerve stimulation. So if we are aerobically fitter, then we can recover quicker, pretty much. That's, that's the crux of it. So if you're able to turn around between sessions better, if, you're, if your recovery is improved, when you go from day one to day two to day three to day four of your training week, by day four, if I'm willing to bet that the fitter person, aerobically fitter person, is probably going to be able to attack day four with a higher training intensity. Oh, all right, um, thank you. So just for the audience's benefit, the person who lives above me right now is doing some jackhammering. So, so if we have to take any unannounced breaks or you hear a bit of noise, that's what's going on there. Um, 
There's a couple of other things. I know that you've deliberately kept stuff kind of simple from a physiological level, but there's a couple of other things related to cardiovascular fitness that are maybe worth talking about. So in, in our most recent episode that we did with Luke Tullock, he spoke about the relationships between peripheral and central fatigue. Um, and my understanding is that when we have greater cardiovascular fitness, we're sort of more resistant to that central fatigue building up. Um, do you know much about that? And if you do, could you maybe give us the, the simple-ish explanation of what's going on? Yeah, so I guess the central fatigue is related to the study of autonomics. So that's the whole parasympathetic, sympathetic side that I was talking about. So if you look at any, so from acute, acute fatigue all the way through to chronic fatigue, that is because of a misbalance between sympathetic drive, parasympathetic drive. So again, if you're able to recover better, the risk of central fatigue drops off. Even with peripheral fatigue, so so for I don't know, those listening, peripheral fatigue being what you feel through muscles, essentially, when you're training, if you can drop off perceived exertion by being fitter, by relying more on aerobic energy systems earlier on in performance, you're probably going to be pushing up your ceiling, essentially. So that burning feeling in your legs, we'll just use that as the example, that burning feeling in your legs, if you can push that feeling up higher, then you're probably going to be able to lift heavier loads before that sets in. That's probably the easiest way to, to use that example for peripheral fatigue. If you're someone that relies on anaerobic metabolism a lot earlier, which is most people, most people that train hard, don't recover well, that aren't very fit, those people's ceiling and their rate of perceived exertion is going to drop off. So they're going to be a lot lower. So for someone that's fitter, they're probably going to be able to train a little bit harder um, within that set, push off those byproducts setting in a lot earlier. So those byproducts being like uh, hydrogen ions. Um, so that's the, that's the burning feeling you get, not lactate. If you can do that, you're probably going to be able to push heavier weights for harder sets. Again, more volume over time. And the way that we, we actually buffer against hydrogen ions is through aerobic metabolism, right? It's, it's the use of oxygen itself. So not only does exposure to that burning sensation make us better at tolerating it, but we also, by being fitter, are able to get rid of the hydrogen ions so the concentration doesn't ramp up so quickly, right? And that's that's part of how this sums up to better training output. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But you, again, you do need that. So that feeling, so you do need the occlusion of muscle at higher intensities in order to recruit motor units. So that is still required. But if you're able to push that point up higher, then that's more mechanical load and tension you're able to put on the muscle. So there's people that know a lot more than me on, on, these, on these subjects. And there's, there's guys that you can look into that are starting to look at more, um, I guess, the way that energy systems work in with hypertrophy. There's uh, Evan Pecon and Aaron Davis. So they use technology called Moxie. So what that does is it tests muscle oxygen saturation. And they usually do it. They, they, they work with a lot of CrossFit athletes. So it makes sense for them. But it's just really interesting to see how much aerobic metabolism does work within a training set, but then how quickly it drops off. Mm. All I'm saying is if someone's aerobically fitter, you can push up that drop-off point. Perceived exertion is lower earlier on. And you're probably going to be able to lift heavier weights over time. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I was listening to a podcast recently with, um, with Dr. Mike Isratel. And he made an argument, and it's an argument that, to be honest, I'm not entirely sold on, um, but one that I can sort of understand where he was saying that, you know, one of the issues that he had with training endurance athletes at one stage was, was that they could just get through so much training without fatigue, but they didn't actually grow from any of it. And he was like, you know, those people who are, who are very sort of like type two oriented in their fibers that, you know, they don't have a whole lot of aerobic fitness might be more stimulated by, by, um, by like less training. Now it might be that type two fibers are more prone to growth, but that it doesn't have to do with their aerobic metabolism capacity. I don't know. Mm. But, um, but the argument that training does need to be sort of sufficiently hard to maximize the growth stimulus is definitely one that, that I do hold with especially because there is some of that evidence now emerging that like that the metabolites themselves might actually promote some growth. And, you know, there was some recent evidence about like the lactylation of DNA 
possibly upregulating, uh, like um, upregulating the expression of certain genes that promote muscle growth as well. Like there's plenty of evidence to suggest training must get hard, but it sounds like you don't want to artificially cap how much work you can do just by being a fucking unfit, sloppy dog. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that's the best way of putting it, for sure. Like if, if you, I just think if you're fitter, you can train harder. You can deal with more volume over time. You're going to recover better. That's the, the that's the whole crux of it, really. Like if you're just able to recover better, you're going to train harder. Simple as that. Well, you, can, if, you can deal with more shit. That's the easiest way of putting it. And that's not just from a training standpoint. That's from a stress standpoint as well. Like everything's stress. Just life stress. If you've got an athlete, and this is the, I guess, more the health side of things that I think is very important. If you can deal with life stress better as an athlete, you're probably going to be able to come into training with a better mindset and you're going to be able to approach training better. Like the amount of research you see on just quality of life and subjective well being from being that bit aerobically fitter. Like, I think that, I think that's enough for me. So you've got a missus, haven't you, Jamie? Yeah. Have you ever said, like, honey, I'm just not fit enough to deal with your shit right now? I've never said that, no. You could try it, man, if she's really stressing you out. And maybe, like, she having, I'm sure, listened to this podcast would be like, oh, that's right. i gotta got to let him get more aerobically fit before I nag him. What do you reckon? Well, I, man, I could argue that if, without training, I'd turn into a piece of shit. So, yeah, we could yeah, definitely say that. She obviously oh. keeps himself in good enough shape as well. Yeah, true. <laughs> All right, we'll let you off the hook. Call his bluff straight away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so you you had sort of started talking about um, talking about this health, this health aspect. So it is it is clearly important. Um, is cardio for powerlifters just for like fat powerlifters, or do you think that people in the more lightweight weight classes and things should be thinking about it too? Uh, I think everyone should be like everyone knows the you know 65 to 80 kilo guy that can eat like a trash can and still rock up to training and get it done but then if you test basic health markers of resting heart rate and blood pressure blood pressure could be 150 over 100 and their resting heart rate at 85 and it's like if you look at just basic um just research on all-cause mortality and resting heart rate and the correlation it's just like all right you don't have to be fat like I know fat guys that are fitter than some skinny guys. Like it's not just about body pump either. Um, so I think everyone could do it without a doubt. I think especially in powerlifting, I think it's definitely starting to go that way. Like you look at a lot of people who are starting to focus more on body composition and to get leaner and to be that little bit healthier. And they're probably going to perform better in the long run. I guess in a sport that's, it's sustained effort over time. The person that's healthy is probably going to last longer in the sport they're lasting longer in the sport, they're increasing their chance for success. I honestly think that the cardio is like the final piece of the puzzle in this sort of journey of powerlifting coaches, you know, since I've been in the sport the last seven years, like it was when I, when I got in the sport, it was like sets of five and below and that's all you have to do. You can be fat and that was it. And then like we started to focus a little bit more on body composition and then we started to focus a little bit more on work capacity. And now we're sort of focusing on health as well. And cardio is kind of that last piece of the puzzle. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. I think it's as people start looking at it from a more systems-based perspective. So if you start looking at just stress and how we respond to stress and how we can improve our response to stress, I think obviously nutrition is definitely one of them. Sleep's a big one. But what's another big controllable? It's probably just getting a bit aerobically fitter. And it's not like it doesn't, it's, and this is where a lot of people get it twisted as well. You think you need ridiculous amounts of conditioning to get fit. Like the, the example that I used about the, you know, the 80 kilo guy with the 150 over 100, that's, that was a real example of a client of mine within four weeks, his heart, his blood pressure. And this was of doing three times a week of cardio. It was general. There's no running. So I don't get any of my clients to run unless they need to run. Um, he did 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off of the circuit. for 50, And it was 15 minutes of total work. The half an hour, the session was half an hour. That three times a week, I'm like, I don't care what you do. Just don't jump, don't run. Just do whatever in between that. And 
within yeah within four weeks his heart rate went from 85 to 70 still could have improved and his blood pressure was went from 150 to 100 to 120 over 80 just standard it doesn't it doesn't take much like it really doesn't i think that when people hear cardio for 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 lifters it's like fuck i've got to run i've got to be on a treadmill for an hour i've got to do high intensity interval training i'm going to do this i'm going to do that that's not really that much especially when you're starting at quite a low level as it is like it doesn't really take that much to improve um so yeah uh, i think i answered the question i think i deviated a little bit as well no perfect because that sort of leads me into into the next question which is like how how if we're interested in just getting some of these benefits could we start integrating some cardio into our programs is it is it a couple of days a week of going for a short walk or is it doing something similar to what your client was doing i think if someone isn't walking first get them walking that's number one if someone isn't getting a minimum of six to eight thousand steps a day as a minimum like it's and i know they're just arbitrary numbers but if you can get someone moving from that and if they've been doing sweet F all prior, you're probably going to see some basic improvements there. Once they've done that for a month, then, or two weeks, maybe get them to start doing, I would just get off days, some steady state work, start them 15 minutes on either day. Now the modality doesn't matter. Um, the one, th- like I said, and I've said it a couple of times already, I'd probably steer clear from jumps because if strength training is the primary focus, we don't need things that carry a lot of eccentric stress. And especially if someone hasn't been exposed to ground contacts before, that is going to cause a lot of stress. So that's, so jumps are out of the picture, especially for powerlifters. Running as well, that is just extensive plyometrics over a long period of time, a lot of eccentric stress. So I would steer clear from that. I like the assault bike. I think it's the absolute best thing you can use 15 minutes just cruise there because you are getting some local um, adaptations to both upper body and lower body. So if we're talking about, so if we split up, I guess the two forms of developing endurance, we've probably got general and more systemic and that comes through low intensity, steady state work. And then if you think of more specific, that's your eights, your tens, your 12 reps, your specific work capacity work. Um, So yeah, I would probably go start two days a week, you can get them doing some steady state work on just like a, a one modality if they're bored and they haven't got the, the I guess, the, uh, the mental capacity to sit there for 15 minutes and they need to be stimulated, give them a circuit of some sort. Like get them to do something like, again, try go for purely concentric. It doesn't matter if there's some eccentric loading in some of the exercises, but you can get them doing some body weight step ups with a, with a weight vest if they're conditioned for that. You get them doing some kettlebell swings. So it's an unloaded eccentric with a powerful concentric. You could get them doing yoga push-ups. You could put your, uh, I don't know, your variability work in there where they're doing a bit of uh, a bit more reaching, where they're doing things that are unlike, uh, I guess, the powerlifting movements. That would be my two go-tos. But if I could get them, I would try to get them to a single modality before doing a circuit. So you mentioned um, in passing the idea of sort of like systemic adaptations and local ones. So systemic ones are things like improvements to, you know, your, um, your stroke volume. So like how much blood your heart pumps and, and like the amount that you can actually oxygenate your blood and circulate it, I presume. And then the local ones, um, tell me if I got this wrong while I'm clarifying it. The local ones are your ability to actually like buffer metabolites and things at the muscular level some changes to capillarization or like the actual blood vessels within your muscles that allow you to send that oxygen to them and supply them to do the work. Right. And so we need, we kind of need like both the adaptations at the central level, the heart and lungs and the adaptations at the muscles so that they can use the oxygen. Um, But I guess following from that, a lot of people's response would kind of be, well, why don't I just do some more volume of my lifting. Like, why isn't that sufficient for, for me to develop cardio? Um, so I'd love to hear your answer. Yeah. So I think the, when you lift more, that includes muscle. It's what we're not trying to achieve with cardio. Cardio is about trying to deliver oxygen to muscles. If you think of the classic Valsalva breath hold, it's not what we're looking for. That is driving blood pressure up 
that is making, oh, what is it? It's, uh, it's arterial resistance, pretty much. You're not able to push blood flow to work muscles, and you, it, we're already getting enough of that. That's what we're not trying to improve. We're trying to improve blood flow. We're trying to improve capillarization. We're trying to increase mitochondrial density in muscle. Like you're not going to get that by occluding muscle. So that's why there is a need for general and systemic work. That's why you do need some of that more steady state work that is where there's constant blood flow, there's constant oxygen um, transport and delivery. You're getting enough of that already, or you're getting enough of the volume. And I guess the argument is it's like, all right, well, some of that stress I'm getting from cardio is going to impede my strength training. It's like, man, if it really does, if that intensity really does, you've got bigger problems than the 20 minutes of cardio. Like it's, it's, it really is fuck all. I swear. Yeah. Sweet. So it, it really is minimal. Like it's not that much. And if you, if your recovery from that intensity of cardio is going to mess with your strength training performance and it's like, all right, you got, you got issues, man. You got to sort shit out. So like, I agree. Um, but I think it's worth exploring the idea of the interference effect a little more anyway, because probably some of the people who have like a little bit of a grounding in sports science might sort of go like, Oh, you know, at the molecular level, like cardio activates AMPK and, you know, weight training activates mTOR and all that shit in a practical sense. I know you've said like a couple of sessions of cardio shouldn't knock you off, but in a practical sense, does it matter at all? And does like maybe the spacing of sessions or all their relative volume and stuff matter? Like, are we expecting to see a change? I think the interference effect is ridiculously overstated because a lot of the research it came from was people trying to chase high levels of performance in both strength training and endurance performance. So if you look at the, the I guess the famous one was Robert Hickson. He was a powerlifter in the 80s or 70s. He was working underneath an endurance performance or a running performance um, professor. He was chasing powerlifting performance, but in order to, in order to uh, impress his professor, he went on runs with him every single day. And then he's like, shit, I'm starting to lose muscle. I'm starting to you know, shit the bedroom, my strength training performance. What's going on here? Professor goes to him, maybe that should be your first research topic. So he did. But, the, and this is where the interference effect was born through his, uh, his project, which pretty much got people lifting five times a week. And the instruction was to lift as heavy as you can, but then also performing endurance training six days a week. And those sessions were three days running, three days cycling. And the running sessions were five minute blocks at your VO2 max. And that's fast. Like that's an RP nine to 10. So, and, and the funny thing with that is they found that the strength training group actually just spiked. They were obviously gaining strength and size, but then the concurrent training group went up to about week seven. And then when it hit week seven, they just started to drop off. So they still actually gained strength and size. And that was the most extreme possible, uh, I, I guess, it's just the ex most extreme scenario that you could put. And they still gain strength. Now, I would never recommend that at all. But I think a lot of it is through, and a lot of the concurrent training research isn't strength training focus, aerobic for a little bit of health. But that's not what the focus is. The focus of a lot of concurrent training research is we're going hard at strength. We're going hard at endurance. We want to improve both qualities at the same time. And then that's when interference effect starts to play a bit of a, a bit of a role. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like, um, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like what you're saying is if you're using your cardio to serve your strength training and you're planning it to like almost minimize interference on a practical level, then what you're really designing it for is net benefit. Whereas if you're really trying to chase both hairs maximally, then like that entails a bit more interference than yes. when one is in charge and the other's a supporter. Yes. A hundred percent. That's exactly it. Like what I'm the, the whole thing I'm pushing for cardio for lifters is it's bare minimums. That's all it is. It's bare minimums. I'm not telling people to go do high intense interval training or run or go for you know three, four times a week. Like at the moment I was I'm prepping for, for a triathlon. That's my goal. I would never recommend anyone 
trying to chase strength and muscle gain to do what I'm doing. It doesn't make any sense to do so. But just for general improvements and for just general recovery benefits, I recommend doing just base level. That's that's all I recommend. And it and it, again, it's as as with anything, you don't get someone doing an hour straight off the bat of like hard, not even hard cardio, like low intensity shit. It's super low intensity. You get them started in 15 minutes. And I'm just gonna say 10 times out of 10, I don't want to be absolutist in this, but everyone usually comes off at the end of 15 minutes of low intensity. And I mean like an, a five out of 10 intensity. And they're like, oh, I actually feel mad. Like my legs actually feel sort of better. They're like, forget the science, forget the physiological mechanisms, forget the, I guess, the interference between activation of mTOR and then AMPK. Like, look, like beyond that, if you can get someone that says, oh, shit, I actually feel all right after doing that. I don't think there's going to be much of an issue. If you've got them doing a session, they're like, I am battered, then you've probably given them too much. And it's probably been at too high an intensity um, for, for the purposes we're trying to, but well, for the adaptations we're trying to, uh, I guess, achieve through that sort of style of training as well. Jamie, you mentioned that you're training for a triathlon at the moment. And I guess that's at the opposite end of the spectrum to training for a powerlifting comp. Yeah. Um, so by that logic of powerlifters being afraid of doing cardio, it would mean, well, you could infer that someone training for a triathlon would be like afraid of doing strength training. But I imagine you're still doing strength training, right? Yeah, so um, I'm still doing strength training three times a week because I don't want to lose muscle. So that's my primary goal right now is like I don't want to drop below like 88 kilos to do the try. That's where I want to be at. Like I started at 94 for the try training and then I've dropped off and I feel like I've retained quite a bit of muscle. But that's through one, just being aware of my nutrition and two, keeping volume high enough for my strength training. Like that's, that's pretty much it. A lot of people in endurance sports are scared of strength training, but for exactly the same reason why powerlifters are scared of endurance performance. But I wouldn't even say it's endurance performance for powerlifters. It's basic cardio. Like it's not, it's not anything hectic. It's not anything strenuous. It's very basic. Like I would go to say that the strength training that an endurance athlete needs is probably of a higher intensity than the cardio that as strength athlete needs to see those improvements so i was um i was going to ask you is there when when we're thinking about strength training for powerlifters is there sort of like a phasic consideration beyond just introducing the cardio at a level that they might be able to do like like are there ways that we might tie it into a typical like you know hypertrophy strength and peaking block and are there times within that where we might want to like really de-emphasize cardio or anything along those lines yeah, so I would probably get every single powerlifter post-comp when they're doing a non-specific training block to do some sort of cardio. Even then, throughout, uh, like they're, they're probably their first volume block after that, I think 12 weeks of doing some low-intensity work is going to be enough to get someone's resting heart rate into the low 60s, which is the number I would go for. So I think that would be enough. When you start leading someone into a specific competition block, you can just cut it. But again, they're going to be fitter than they were if they didn't do it. And they're probably going to be able to deal with the stresses of the competition phase a lot better than if they didn't. Um, you said you cut it. Do you just cut it out completely or do you try and keep those markers like at, at that maintenance level? Well, it's, it's the whole specificity comes at a cost thing. So it's like you've got health and performance on a spectrum. If you're chasing performance, you're going to have to sacrifice health to an, to an extent. That's, that's my opinion on it. I feel like with any, with any endeavor where you're trying to, I guess, chase excellence, you're going to have to sacrifice something. And in that case, your resting heart rate going from 60 to 70 in 12 weeks is piss all when you think about the amount of work required to get it back down after the competition block. Like the goal then is not, you haven't got these concurrent goals of, all right, I want to PR my squat bench and deadlift, but also keep my resting heart rate at 60. Like unless they've got a health condition that requires them to do so, I'll, I'll just scrap that and say, all right, we've got 12 weeks to hammer squat bench and deadlift. Let's get the most out of your competition. Just, just cut the competing stressor. But even then, like you could probably get, keep someone at 15 minutes on a, on a Wednesday 
and a Saturday or even 20 minutes on a Wednesday and Saturday and it'll probably help them deal with the stresses of powerlifting comp prep. You actually just preempted me because I was going to play devil's advocate and say like, whilst training is at its most stressful, there must also be almost like the most benefit to just having some of that really low intensity stuff, even if it is, like you said, 15, 20 minutes, like going for a walk on your off days and just getting some of that, you know, autonomic regulation and things that you were talking about kicking in. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I would like to, I would like a lot of people to try and give it a shot. The next one. Uh, like it's, I, I think it's the, the whole uh, the stigma around cardio for, for lifting is definitely starting to drop off. And I feel like a lot more people are going to start prioritizing it because yeah, like a, someone that's a bit healthy is probably going to deal with the stresses better. So yeah, like you, I, I completely agree. I think doing a bit of bit of it in a competition block is probably going to make them feel better on days they feel like trash. I'm going to like in the most extremely anecdotal sense ever relay my experience in my last few comps, which is that I've actually made an effort to on my rest days go for a walk and not like not go trudging along a track fast and not go for a long time. I'm talking 20 to 30 minutes where I'm literally just wandering, listening to a podcast, but I use that time to get outside and relax and prevent myself really stiffening up because the alternative for me would be literally parking myself on my ass and just feeling like shit. But just going and doing that, spending some time in nature and getting my body moving almost invariably makes me feel really good. I tend to feel pretty flat if I go for a long walk and then go straight to the gym Hmm. but if on my off days I do those things, then my affect has generally been better and my stress has generally been lower. And maybe I can't attribute that entirely to cardio, but I certainly can't say that practice has cost me anything. It's felt great. Man, I'm, I'm sure, like anecdotally you say that, but I'm sure there would be enough, like if, if I'm, I'm not about pure evidence-based, I guess, recommendations, but you know, if you were to look for the evidence, I'm sure you would find 101 reasons as to why that's helping you on your off days. Bro, you know my motto is like "fuck evidence, start smoking." Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, man, I, I honestly think that you like if if you were to look at the evidence, there'd be there. But yeah, fuck evidence. Fuck evidence. <laughs> and like even if you like even if you feel better and there is no evidence to support it, and you feel better going into your strength training sessions, that's going to make such a big difference. Even if it's just a mental thing, that's such a big yeah. Difference. Well, it's it's the whole like the placebo effect is an effect thing, right? Like mm. it's still an effect. Mm. Yeah. Like, yeah, if you placebo feel, in effect, if you feel better, you're going to perform better. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I feel like this is just, it's like, I feel powerlifting is like plays a bit catch up compared to other sports because you've got this, you've got the, the strength coach is the sports coach. It's acting as the sports psych. It's acting, acting as the sports nutritionist. Whereas if you come from, any other sport under the sun, they're probably going to look, all right, so we need to keep them sort of fit, but we need to keep them strong, but we need to keep them happy. And they need to understand the tactics of the sport. And they're working to integrate that, I guess, that holistic mindset to that. And I, like it's as with any sport, but I feel like with powerlifting, it's just played that little bit of catch up. And everyone's understanding, okay, everything affects everything else. If we get someone that's firing on all cylinders, they're probably going to perform better. And I think that's where, like you said, Alex, like that's where uh, it is probably the final piece of the puzzle. We see people are really focusing on nutrition now. They're focusing on sleep as best they can. They're focusing on, focusing on sunlight and getting outside. Funny that that helps. But um, like they're ticking all those boxes. And again, it's subjective well-being. I think subjective well-being rules over absolutely everything else in all aspects of performance. Like if you feel better as a human being, you're going to want to train harder. Like that's, that's pretty, that pretty much sums it up. There's all the physiological reasons and all the physiological benefits in the world and all the research and evidence and you know, the, the, the improvements to autonomics and everything else, but you, you're just going to get someone feeling better. They're going to train better. They're going to train harder. Mad. All right. Um, I feel like you've given us lots of really good messages there. Before we take a little break, because um, we want to hit you with our four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Before we do that, I'd love to just give you a chance to maybe give your pitch for why people should be doing some physical activity in you know 30 seconds and just the most basic way to implement it you can, and then we'll roll on. So I think everyone should be doing just that little bit of physical activity because a fitter human is going to be able to deal with more stress. 
not just physical stress, but life stress. If you can deal with more, you're going to be a more adaptable human being, which I would say is the definition of a healthier human being. That's, that's, that would be my 30 second pitch, I reckon. Oh, all right, quick break, and then we'll hit you with the questions. Hey. Welcome back to Weekly Weights. Uh, we're going to hit Jamie now with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Jamie, you ready? Ready. He's not ready. Uh, sorry, I'm interrupting. I said that anyone who looks at the questions in advance is a cheating dog. And so Jamie's elected to fly blind because he's not about being called a dog or being a cheater. And he's a fair man. Yeah, he's a fair man. So he's not ready at all, but he's bravely just staring into the void and waiting to see what comes out of it. Adam. Bravely unprepared. All right, question one is, if you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? Tupac. <laughs> That's actually a great answer. That's a great answer. Is a ghetto poet, man. There would be intellectual conversation and I'm sure there would be a, a night out afterwards to, to follow. Is a G. Yeah, I got to say, he would have had a very interesting life, hey? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you've seen, if you ever want to watch a doco on him, is um, Tupac Resurrection. That's the, watch it, classic. Yeah, no, I would enjoy that very much. You make sure you don't take a window seat, though, in case Biggie drives by, because you can't have that. Nah, no window seats. Bullets Never. flying. All right, <laughs> Alex, question two. Question two, who's your favourite athlete of all time? Uh, you probably wouldn't have heard of him is Ramon Deckers. So my background in sport, um, was Muay Thai. So I've fought in Muay Thai and boxing for my whole life before getting into S and C. He was a Dutch kickboxer. When in the eighties, Muay Thai wasn't like a big, it wasn't really big. So it was all kickboxing, just hands and legs. He went over. And he pretty much beat the ties at their own game. So it was the Westerner that went over there. They're like, pretty much if you, if you went to decision, the tie was going to get it. So he went there and he just knocked him out and then earned their respect by that. So that was, and it was, it was vicious. If, again, if you want to watch anything on that, you want to see some ridiculous highlights, suss him out. It's actually scary. That's mad. Okay, this rat upstairs is doing his renovations. Um, so we'll be turning the mic off in between asking the questions. But number three is which movie or television character do you most resemble? So uh, I don't think this personally. Everyone else says it. does my head in when they do say it. But it sounds like Rocky. Or I sound like Rocky. I used to have a bit of a slur when I was training in boxing quite a bit. So... Um, that's what I've heard from a lot of people. I can kind of see like just a little bit of that. I was thinking a bit of the count from Sesame Street as well. <laughs> don't look so pissy, man. The count's iconic. There's, I don't see it. There's a really funny, cause you've got a little bit of a hook nose. Hey, Jamie. It's bent. Yeah. So the count's got a little bit of that, I think is why. Um, and there's a really good YouTube video you should look up which is the count likes to, and then it's um, asterisks. And they just bleep out every time he says count, but it just, it makes it sound like he's saying fuck. And it's hilarious. It's great edit, but look it up. And that is 100% Jamie. I'll have to suss it out. And I'm Googling an image of the count because I haven't seen Sesame Street for a while. And I sort of want to tell you to get fucked. (laughs) (laughs) While you look that up, question four. Is if your life was being made into a movie montage and you could pick the music, what would you set it to? Easy. So Rocky Four, Hearts on Fire, when he's preparing for Drago in the mountains. Hearts on Fire. I'm going to have to look that up. I don't know which one Hearts on Fire is. It's an 80s anthem, but it's the one where he's in the snow and he's dragging shit and (laughs) training like an absolute animal. He's in the cabin and stuff. And he's in the cabin and is is pretty much putting the, the middle finger up to the Soviet training methods. Says I can just drag shit and all your dogs. Here and doing a little, doing everything. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's the one. That's the track. That's the no-brainer. Right. I like. I actually watched Rocky for the first time, um, right at the start of the year or maybe towards the end of last year, and it was 
like good watching. Like it's cheesy as hell, but you just got to love it. Like anybody who's into sport has to love Rocky, you know? It's unbelievable. Everyone except for Rocky Five. Rocky Five is for the bin. Don't watch it. Do you like Creed as well? I've only seen the first one. That's I like Creed. That's good. That's good. Oh yeah, there is a Creed too, isn't it? I got a lot of boxing it. movies. You know what's a great boxing movie? Is did you ever watch Cinderella Man? Great. It's got Russell Crowe. Great. Nah. Man, like okay, bearing in mind that like Gladiator is one of my favorite movies of all time. Like like Russell Crowe is just the king in that movie. Cinderella Man has like a lot of gladiator about it, like the dude who's just who's just going in for a dude fight, you know, for honor. That's basically exactly it. Um, but it's based on a true story. Obviously, it's heavily dramatized. Based mm. on a true story of a depression era boxer who takes a who takes a fight against a guy who I think is the heavyweight champion of the world who had killed two people in the ring or something because his family's like you know like living on whatever work that he can pick up by lining up in the dockyards. And so he's trying to trying to make ends meet so he can feed his family during the depression. Mm. And like it, you know, follows him, Russell Crowe, as he, you know, prepares to try and beat this guy. And it's just a great movie. It's really, really good. It's like, it's everything you like about boxing movies in one. And I'll Rusty. Have I'll, have to, I'll have to watch it. There's, there's too many good ones to list. Southpaw, The Fighter with Mark Wahlberg, Raging Bull with De Niro. Like there's too many good ones. Okay, not a boxing movie. But a truly great movie. Did you ever watch The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke? Oh, ages ago. Man, that movie is awesome. Like, I mean, it's not really about wrestling per se. It's about this guy as a character. But that is a fucking tops movie. Yeah. So there's, that's like the, the fighter. So it's Mickey Wahlberg and Christian Bale. I would say Christian Bale is probably my favourite actor. But it's more about like the, the life of Mickey Ward. And it's all the background. Like, they don't show any fighting in it. I think one fight. But it's all about his background. So, that's that would probably be my number one boxing movie. The Fighter. Have you not the seen Fighter. It? No. Really? Really? No, really? I'll watch it. I gotta say, Bale. I'm also a big Christian Bale fan. Like, I'm just amazed by how diverse he can, like, of a role he can occupy. And, you know, the classic one is the picture of him in The Machinist or whatever it's called versus, like, him as Batman. He's pretty, he's pretty, pretty skinny in this one, too. Really? Yeah, he's like a yeah. crackhead. Yeah, I I don't know how he does it, but I yeah, dig Christian Bale. Yeah. All right, dude. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, your last job is to tell everyone where they can get in touch with you for coaching um, and just drop plugs for any other content you do or any other way to reach you you want to. Yeah, so my Instagram is my full name, which I'm not going to spell out. I'll let the guys put that in the title of this podcast. So you can reach me there for... Any questions? Um, we're putting out quite a bit of content through YouTube at the moment. So if you could check that out on the Melbourne Strength Culture channel. Apart from that, that's probably about it. If you want to reach out, have any questions, I'm always open to answer them. So yeah, thanks thanks for having me, boys. No appreciate right, it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, appreciate it. It was good fun. I'm Will at w.berkmanpt. I'm Alex at alexhays underscore process. We'll talk to you guys next week. <laughs>